Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Egypt in the 1920s was a hotbed of archaeological discovery. London was awash with Egyptian artefacts that had been looted and obtained on holidays by the elite and wealthy British people, who used Egypt as a veritable playground. As far back as 1753, the British Museum displayed Egyptian artefacts to the general public, and from that point onward, the general populace were fascinated with the land of the pharaohs, and particularly the elaborate rituals that surrounded their dead. For one little Londoner, this obsession would creep into his very being and send him on a pilgrimage to Egypt, eventually resulting in him making the most important archaeological discovery of all time. However, the disturbance of an ancient dead king may have released a deadly curse, which went on to kill several of those involved in the excavation. This time on Macabre London, we uncover the story of Howard Carter and the curse of King Tutankhamun. London is dotted with a surprising amount of Egyptian imagery. It only takes a short while wandering in the city before familiar sculptures such as the sphinxes on the banks of the Thames are stumbled across. The 3,500-year-old Cleopatra's Needle, which sits proudly on the embankment, was taken from the city of Alexandria, Cleopatra's hometown, and it doesn't seem out of place with the adjacent Victorian and Georgian architecture. Benches are adorned with Victorian versions of winged gods, facades of buildings in the influence of the country can be seen dotted around on many different buildings in the city, if you know where to look. And even if you don't know where to look, as it was that popular... Stepping off the tube at Hoburn will find you mingling with Egyptian murals nestled neatly next to the roundels, giving you a hint of what is sitting within the walls of the nearby British Museum. The second largest collection of Egyptian artefacts outside of Cairo, the British Museum allowed Londoners and those from all over the country to mingle with these ancient artefacts, 
and it wasn't long before rumours began to abound about some of these fascinating objects. If you listen to my Secrets of the Central Line edition of Trains, Pains and Underground Squeals, then you'll already know about the ghost of a mummy, resplendent in his headdress and loincloth, that supposedly haunts the now-defunct British Museum station. And if you don't, then I'll leave the link in the description, so you can check that out after this. A quick trip to any of London's magnificent seven cemeteries also shows a remarkable trend for ripping off their symbolism in death. Pyramid-shaped monuments, tomb-style mausolea, and again, sphinxes pop up on the graves of dead Victorians. One particular cemetery, Highgate, even has a whole dedicated avenue of tombs, which is resplendent in its Egyptian glory, paying tribute to the culture it borrowed from. Even more modern interior design in the capital borrows from the land of the pharaohs. Harrods, for example, installed an Egyptian-themed hall and escalator, complete with enormous busts of pharaohs, when Egyptian Mohammed El-Fayyad bought the department store back in 1985. The Egyptian facade is now listed by English Heritage, and one Canada Square, built in 1991, which towers over Canary Wharf, has a pyramid sat atop its 240-metre column. But how exactly did this obsession with Egypt come about? After Nelson defeated Napoleon at the Battle of the Nile in 1798, the English did what they did best and began helping themselves to many artefacts from the country, bringing them back home, never to be returned to their homeland again. Fast forward to 1852, and the English were increasing their presence in Egypt to maintain trade routes to India, which were proving to be profitable, and not long after seeing how these trade routes were profiting, French investors financed the construction of the Suez Canal to connect the Mediterranean and Red Seas. Fast forward again to 1882, and again the British try and intervene in the country, trying to protect their financial assets. And that causes a violent war to break out, which makes things a little strained between the two countries, but England threw its weight around and won the war. This saw many English people heading to the country, and as such, this strange and exotic land became a playground for the type of people that would think nothing of stealing things from the dead, just because they were a fun thing to take back home after their holiday. For those back in London in particular that couldn't afford to travel or were a bit nervous of going abroad, there were parties held which would put these holiday trinkets on show. One surgeon in particular, Thomas Pettigrew, used to hold mummy unwrapping parties for horrified and enthralled guests. Pettigrew, who had come up through the ranks in the time of body snatching and illicit autopsies, no wonder had very little respect when it came to these stolen remains. In total, it's thought he held over 40 of these unwrapping parties, where he would unceremoniously hack off limbs, cut open skulls, and after the corpse was entirely unwrapped, stand them up so everyone could see the shriveled remains. After such extensive research of these mummies, Pettigrew took his skills and used them to consensually mummify the corpse of the 10th Duke of Hamilton. Using traditional Egyptian techniques, before he was laid to rest in a purpose-built giant mausoleum inside a gold ancient sarcophagus he had obtained from Egypt. It's safe to say that all the Egyptomania that was happening in London only played a part in popularising the country across the world. America and Europe also got in on the artefact stealing, 
but nowhere near as much as us Brits. But nobody would have imagined that a private collection of artefacts in Didlington Hall in Norfolk would have been responsible for a future monumental archaeological discovery. Howard Carter was born the youngest of 11 children on the 9th of May 1874 in Kensington in West London. As he was a sickly child who wasn't faring well in boisterous London, his mother decided he would be best off moving to the countryside where he would benefit from the fresh air. His mother packed him up and sent him off to Swaffham in Norfolk to live with his two aunts, where he would spend his time in their modest farmhouse and help out working the land. His education was meagre and he was often put to work instead of being schooled by his aunts. However, he did have some inherited skills from his father, which did mean he was at least able to hone these on his own. Howard's father Samuel was an illustrator and painter specialising in animals. Even though he was talented, he was never highly revered in the art world, but instead he became a jobbing artist, working illustrating for newspapers. The other children in the Carter family, of which only eight of the eleven survived into adulthood, three went on to become more esteemed artists than their father, with the only daughter and two of the sons exhibiting at the Royal Academy. With Howard being away in Swaffham, and as the last forgotten child of eleven, he was mainly set for a life of menial drawing work, and it was looking like he was set to make his living that way. Without many other children around in Swaffham, Howard found himself quite isolated and somewhat of a loner. This attitude he would carry with him throughout the rest of his life, and was often referred to in his adult years as having a chip on his shoulder. Struggling to make friends, and without much else to do to occupy his time, he used to have occasional visits from his father, who took him to Didlington Hall, a country house ten miles from his aunt's home in Swaffham. Didlington was a decaying mansion house where his father would sit and paint, and encourage his son to do the same. But in moments of boredom, and presented with a veritable mansion to explore, young Howard would disappear off exploring. It was here he discovered the museum that the mansion held, which was full to the brim with all sorts of anthropological artefacts from around the world. The museum held a large collection of items from ancient Egypt, and it was these objects that Howard was instantly drawn to. To occupy his time, Howard would walk the ten miles between his home and Didlington, taking his sketching materials and spending hours on end in the Egyptian galleries. The family that owned the house, the Amhursts, soon started to notice this boy hanging around at the museum on a more than regular basis and took pity on him, teaching him more and more about the artefacts on display. Howard would sit and sketch the items for hours and it was clear to the Amhursts just how talented of an artist he was. This was a great place for Howard to start learning about ancient Egypt and his lurking around the museum and his indefatigable visits to sketch the artefacts soon gave him a very niche skill set in accurately recording all things Egyptian. After surrounding himself in the ancient Egyptian underworld, it was only a matter of time before the inevitable happened, and with the backing of Lord Amherst as his patron, 17-year-old Howard was offered a job as a tracer and draftsman on a trip to Egypt. Once he'd arrived in Egypt, he was sent immediately to some tombs in Beni Hassan, an Egyptian cemetery. He was put to work straight away recording accurately the hieroglyphs and paintings inside the tombs. He would sketch and paint the interiors for posterity, 
as in a time before cameras, this was the only way to record what was inside the tombs for future generations. Equally, with his skill of being able to accurately record colours and textures, Howard could provide incredible accuracy with his drawings, and his employers were very impressed with his work. After a series of seasons spent in Egypt carrying out similar roles, Howard slowly worked his way up the ladder and landed himself a job which lasted five years, recording the inscriptions inside the tomb of the second female pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, Hatshepsut. By the age of 25, and with eight years of practical experience under his belt, Carter was phenomenally skilled for his age. As a result, he was offered a position as a monuments inspector for the Egyptian Antiquities Service. The EAS, as they were known, were the protecting body for all things ancient Egyptian. Since the desecration of tombs and the swathes of exported artefacts were causing a lot of their history to be removed from the country, the EAS was set on making sure the artefacts were looked after. Howard was sent to Luxor, one of the oldest cities in the world, and it was here he would arrive in the place where he would create his legacy, the Valley of the Kings. Working under another archaeologist, Theodore Davis, Carter learned from his tutelage how to correctly excavate and care for the items they discovered, but by this time, there wasn't much left in the Valley of the Kings to be unearthed. The tombs within the valley had been desecrated, bodies stolen and artefacts sold to tourists. Carter was horrified at how this kept happening to some incredibly important sites, and after a serious dispute with the locals who were robbing the tombs to sell the items to tourists who would pay a pretty penny for them, he spent some time in Lower Egypt as tempers kept fraying. However, this didn't change much, as after a fight broke out between some French tourists and Egyptian sight guards who were protecting some tombs from being ransacked, Howard sided with the Egyptians, which didn't go down well after an official complaint was made by French authorities. After pressure to apologise, Carter resigned from the EAS as he didn't want to back down on protecting the tombs from petty thievery. With his day job now gone, Howard was now free to work on his own projects, and after a few years of downtime where he focused on selling watercolours to tourists instead of archaeology, he couldn't stay away for long, and decided he was heading back into the game. During his time away, he'd had a chance to reflect on all the excavations thus far, and he was certain there was something out there that had yet to be discovered. After working in the valley for 13 years, Carter knew the place well and knew there were 62 tombs which had already been excavated. He worked his way back through a list of the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty and realised that one tomb had yet to be found, the tomb of King Tutankhamun. After creating a grid system to accurately map the tombs that had been found already, Howard had a rough idea of where the tomb might be but due to floods, the entrance had most likely been hidden. As Tutankhamun wasn't much of a highly revered pharaoh as some of those that had gone before him, it was likely the tomb had been lost to time. Tutankhamun was around eight years old when he ascended to the throne. He was a sickly child who had mobility issues, particularly in his legs, and he walked with a stick. His parents were brother and sister, which was quite likely the reason behind his genetic ailments. Keeping it in the family, Tutankhamun also married his sister. 
He didn't have any descendants that survived, as by this point, the family tree was like a faded photocopy of genetics, and the two daughters his sister did produce were both stillborn. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One. It's not entirely known how or why the Boy King died, but at the age of 18, he was quickly laid to rest. Knowing the tomb was out there, Carter just had to find it and get into it, but it wouldn't be a simple task, and the whole dig would need financing in order to make sure the job was done properly. When Carter came back from his sabbatical in 1906, he began working for Lord Carnarvon, who financed him to carry out excavations of some tombs in Thebes in Luxor. This working relationship continued for seven years, and when Carter floated the idea of trying to find the tomb of King Tut in 1914, Carnarvon stumped up the cash. Carter got the permissions to excavate in the Valley of the Kings and the money from Carnarvon, and off he went. However, the First World War interrupted the whole affair, and Carter worked as a courier during this time, which put the brakes on the discovery until 1917, when he started again. The first excavations were fruitless, and after five years and many failed attempts, Carnarvon was getting fed up and bored of the whole process. He was spending out plenty of money on Carter's dream, but there was very little being given back to him. Carnarvon let Howard know he no longer wanted to finance the excavations, and that was it. The treasure hunt was over. However, there was only one square left on Carter's grid map of the valley, which had yet to be uncovered. Carter begged Carnarvon to let him just try the last square, and taking pity on him, he said he would. But that was it. If nothing came of it, he was turning off the money tap. On the 1st of November 1922, the work began on excavating the last square on the map, and it wasn't long before Howard could report back to Carnarvon that things were going extremely well. Just four days into the dig, the stairs that led into a tomb were uncovered, along with some hieroglyphs, and Howard was elated. Wanting Carnarvon there to witness the full extent of the excavation, he sent for him, and it took two weeks for him to get to Egypt from his home in Highclere Castle in Hampshire. In the meantime, Howard ordered the excavations be covered up, in order to wait for Carnarvon's arrival, which must have felt like Christmas Eve lasted a fortnight. Once Carnarvon was in Egypt, he rushed to Carter, and the team was assembled to open the tomb. On the morning of the Great Excavation, a hawk was seen circling above the site. A very bad omen. The ancient Egyptians believed that the souls of the dead were reincarnated into hawks, 
so perhaps King Tut was watching over his tomb being opened. The Egyptian workers tried to warn the English archaeologists, but they didn't listen and continued on with their dig. After all, they'd come too far to turn back now. Later on that day, Howard's pet canary was eaten by a cobra, possibly quite the warning sign from the ancient Egyptian gods, but it was ignored. Once the tomb was opened, it wasn't as easy as just going in, taking a look, and that being that. It took between 8 to 10 years to document and archive everything inside. The tomb contained a veritable time capsule of Tut's life. All of his worldly possessions were inside, his furniture, hunting chariot, clothing and other artefacts along with the king himself in his gold sarcophagus, protected by two giant effigies of himself in a second chamber. Carter painstakingly catalogued the items under the watchful eye of the Egyptian Department of Antiquities and his use of photography to document the items was groundbreaking. Carter had effectively now exceeded his draftsman skills and could record the items inside the tomb with just the press of a button. The items inside, which amassed over 5,000 unique artefacts, were impeccably preserved, giving an insight into the lives of the ancient Egyptians. Understandably, the story of the opening of this ancient tomb was huge, and after the world was emerging from the Spanish flu epidemic that started in 1920 and lasted three years, plus the end of World War I, everyone could do with some good, exciting news, and Howard, with his exciting discovery of King Tut, was the one. The newspapers were clamouring for the rights to the story, but this was awarded to just one journalist, Arthur Waddell, who worked for the Daily Mail. And rather unsurprisingly, the rest of the newspapers were rather upset by this, and the rumour mill started to go into overdrive. The papers still reported the fines, but everything was tinged with a hint of grave robbing, desecration, and disturbing the remains of a long-dead king. The next four weeks were a whirlwind of discovery, and understandably, after back-to-back days of long work, the team was exhausted. Lord Carnarvon took some time to recuperate and decided he would take a trip on the Nile for some much-needed R&R, but things didn't go smoothly. He got bitten by a mosquito, and when shaving, he nicked the bite and got septicemia and died. Rather interestingly, back at Highclere Castle, his beloved dog also died the same night he did. With Carnarvon dead, it didn't take long for rumours to abound that a curse had been put upon the explorers that dared to enter the tomb of the ancient King Tut. The papers had a story they were allowed to run with, and it wasn't long before rumours of an ancient curse became the norm. However, stories of curses by mummies were nothing new. Popular tales were told in Penny Dreadfuls, and even the writer of Little Women, Louisa May Alcott, wrote a short story called The Curse of the Mummy, and as such, the English people had been conditioned to accept the plausibility of such an elaborate tale. So it didn't take much when Carnarvon died to start spreading the news that he'd been cursed by King Tut himself. When his half-brother underwent surgery back in London a few months after Carnarvon's death, he had complications which caused him to go blind before he died of sepsis, the same thing Carnarvon died of, and this was enough to get journalists whirring into a frenzy. The press ran wild with the story, and back in England, the newspapers were awash with curse headlines. In fact, when doing my research for this episode, 
I found multiple reports of people being affected by the curse of King Tut, even more than the commonly reported curse victims that are rolled out today when talking about this phenomena. Seemingly, anyone who even had a passing connection to those who opened the tomb and subsequently had something unfortunate happen to them were making headlines. The curse also now seemed to be extending beyond those who had uncovered the tomb, and not to be cynical or anything, but those types of headlines would sell newspapers. A list of names started to appear of people who had met a sticky end after they had just simply visited the tomb as guests, let alone had anything to do with the excavations. Along with Carnarvon and his half-brother, there was also George J. Gould, who visited the tomb in 1923 and who died from pneumonia weeks later, Prince Ali Farmy Bay, who visited the tomb in 1923, who was later shot by his wife, Arthur C. Mace, Carter's right-hand man during the excavations, well, he had a breakdown in Egypt and had to return to England. However, he didn't die until 1928. Sir Archibald Reed, who x-rayed artefacts from the tomb, had been instructed by Carter to x-ray the body of Tutankhamun, but he died a few days after arriving in Egypt in 1924. However, that was more likely as a result of his chosen occupation, as messing around with unregulated radiation was bound to have quite an effect on even the strongest of constitutions. Hugh Evelyn White, who was there the day the tomb was opened, and a friend of Howard's, committed suicide in the back of a taxi in Leeds by shooting himself in 1924, after a close friend of his died, but in a letter he wrote to a friend weeks earlier, he apparently wrote that he knew he had a curse on him for removing some writings in the tomb. George Benedict, the curator of Egyptian artefacts at the Louvre in Paris, fell on the steps of the tomb when visiting and died not long after in 1926, as did his colleague Mr. Passanova, who visited the tomb with him. Richard Bethel, Lord Carnarvon's secretary, and also there on the day the tomb was opened, experienced a series of mysterious fires which broke out at his home. Not long after, he was found dead in his bedroom, dying under mysterious circumstances that would never be solved. As a result of Bethel's death, his father also killed himself weeks later, jumping out of a window. Dr Jonathan Carver, who was one of the initial dig team, also died in a car crash in 1929. So all in all, King Tut's curse was being blamed for the deaths of 12 men, one dog and one canary. If legend is to be believed, the intrepid explorers knew exactly what they were getting themselves into when they broke into the tomb. An inscription on an old tablet was found in the tomb, which read, Death would come on swift wings to anyone who destroyed the tomb. However, like all good tall tales, this was later proven to be just a rumour, and the tablet which prophesied the deaths to come was never found. And given the accurate recording of all other items inside the tomb, it's almost certain that this tablet didn't exist. In 2002, epidemiologist Mark R. Nelson published an article titled A Historical Study of the Mummy's Curse in the British Medical Journal. After researching the 44 people who Carter recorded were present at the opening of the tomb, Nelson concluded, after researching everyone's obituaries, that actually nothing was out of the ordinary. 
After working out if the amount of times people were exposed to the tomb increased their likelihood of dying early, he summarised that, and I quote, there was also no effect on survival time for any exposure or number of exposures. End quote. One thing that was hugely overlooked was the fact that the chief of the whole operation, Howard himself, had seemingly escaped the curse. After all, if anyone was going to be struck down by a disgruntled Tutankhamun, it should be him. Carter always dismissed the theory of the curse, not wishing to engage in such discussions. And after all, we have to remember that the people that died were his friends, colleagues and associates. The thought of cheapening those deaths by attributing them to some sort of curse must have only upset Howard and undermined the important work these people carried out in the most important archaeological discovery of all time. Howard died at his home in London at the age of 64 from Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was buried in Putney Vale Cemetery, where the inscription on his very normal gravestone, not grandiose tomb, reads, May your spirit live. May you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. This was an inscription taken from a favourite artefact of Howard's called the Wishing Cup, which he found inside Tutankhamun's tomb. The curse of the mummy played its part in acting as a distraction from the horrors of everyday life for many at the time. After World War I and also the Spanish flu epidemic, the world was in a state of disarray and chaos, and the discovery of the long-forgotten tomb really helped to boost the morale of the British people. Carter, with his meagre education and unprivileged background, worked hard to land himself exactly where he wanted to be, persevering when everyone else had given up on his dream, and just when everyone told him he should quit, he carried on and proved everyone wrong, discovering history as he himself was making it. Three thousand years ago, in history we know, King Tutankhamun ruled a mighty land. He ruled for many years, with lots of song and tears. He made a record that will always stand. Why, they opened up his tomb the other day and jumped with glee. They learned a lot of ancient history. In old King Tut, 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 Uncommon Day. Beneath the tropic skies, King Tut, Tut, Tut was very wise. Now old King Tut. Thanks so much for joining me for that episode. As always, please let me know your thoughts in the comments or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast. Give the video a thumbs up and the show a rating on your podcast provider as it's so helpful and lets me know you enjoy what I make and that I'm not just shouting into the void of the internet. If you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed, then please do. I'd love for you to join the Ghoul Gang. We're a friendly bunch and we seem to be growing, so um, do come and join us. Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I do, then why not consider becoming a patron? Like these amazing legendary executive Patreon producers, Sam, Barry, Veronica, Sarah, Kate and Mary, and all of our other patrons too. Patrons get an exclusive show from me once a month, you get to vote on what episodes I do next, and also depending on the tier, you'll get some tangible goodies through the post too. I'll leave the link in the description for Patreon so you can check it out at your leisure if you'd like to sign up. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.